All right. If you have your Bible, find the last book in it, Revelation chapter 3. Feels, feels good to be back in Revelation. Been away from it for a couple of weeks. But we're still in this first section of the book. If you were here for the introductory parts to this study, you'll, you might recall that there are, in my view, seven different Seven different sections in, in the book of Revelation. So it's not a linear book. It's not like a book that er, you know, it, it gets later in time as the book goes. No, it's seven different sections. Every section describing the same period of time over and over again. What period of time? Whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. Um, and uh, we're in the first of those seven sections. Uh, dominated, as if you've been here, you know, by these seven different letters from the Lord Jesus Christ to seven different churches in ancient Asia Minor. I said that these seven sections all cover the same period of time from the first coming to the second coming. So how does a collection of seven letters do that? Well, it does it this way. Every one of these letters, I won't rehearse all the reasons. You can go back on the podcast and, and, and brush up on those. But all of these letters, each... Each one of these letters and all of them together are intended not merely to be relevant to those seven original churches, but to all churches everywhere for all time from the first uh, coming of Christ until he comes again. And so, um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're walking our way slowly through this first section. When we, the pace is going to pick up faster when we get to chapter 4 because once we get to the finish with this first section, we're going to basically take a chapter at a time all the way to the end of the book. Uh, but these letters are simply too rich to, to lump them together just for the sake of time. So this morning we're on the fifth of these uh, seven letters. The letter from Christ to the church in Sardis, which was another once prominent city in the Roman Empire. If you were able to read it and think about it and Pray through it ahead of time, which I encourage you to do. Maybe you'll know what I mean when, when, I, when I say that in a lot of ways this is a rather chilling and sobering letter, especially when you remember what we, what we just now noted, that this letter was not just... It would have been sobering and chilling for them when they received it, but all the more so when we realize this letter is not just meant for them, but for all churches for all time and all places until Christ returns. So... We'll see why, it's, why I say that when we think through it carefully. But all seven letters, or uh, yeah, all of them, at least toward the end of each letter, maybe not the last thing that is said in each letter, but toward the end of each letter, you have a phrase similar to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, listen to these letters. Pay close attention to them. The words are, are as much for us today as they were for them then. And, and each, letter, each letter emphasizes something just a little different about what we should as a church strive for, what we should as a church recognize about ourselves, repent of, what should characterize us in order to be a faithful church until Jesus comes again, if we would be a church pleasing to Him. And we've already thought through a number of these letters and if we were going to describe each one, as we've been trying to do, we, we saw that the church in Ephesus, the first one, we described as a church without love. He says 
there in, in chapter 2, verse 4, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. They believed the right things. It appears that they had grown cold in their love, presumably for Christ, for each other, for the lost. And um, I'm just rehearsing what we've already seen to get up to speed. I know some of you are maybe new to this study. People who have genuinely, think about Ephesus still, people who have genuinely understood the gospel of um, Jesus Christ, of His love for us, of His grace to us, um, of His Spirit's work in us, we overflow in our love back to Him and, and to other people. Um, and uh, so that was sort of the message of, of, the, of the letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, but then we saw in, in Smyrna, we described it as a church without compromise. It was a book in which, with whom the, the, the Lord found no fault. I mean, not that they were completely sinless, but he didn't, he didn't say, he didn't give them anything for which they needed to repent. He praised that church for uh, their, 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 their faithfulness uh, and refusing to compromise and holding fast to their confession through incredibly hard, relentless circumstances. And there's only two churches for which he does that, by the way, Smyrna, and then we'll see uh, next week in Philadelphia. And we saw the church in Pergamum. Um, they faced the same hardships as Smyrna did. But unlike, unlike, unlike Smyrna, Pergamum was a church without conviction. That they experienced the same hardships as Smyrna, but in the same temptations to compromise, but they didn't hold fast. They, they, in other words, well, more particularly, they, they tolerated false teaching. False teaching that if they had followed that teaching would have eased at least possibly would have eased their hardship in the world. It would have made them less different and distinct from the culture they lived in. And they chose faithfulness to the teaching of the culture over the teaching of Christ. We saw a similar thing in Thyatira, which was the next church. Uh, similar circumstances as the previous two churches. We called it a church without accountability. Because... Like Pergamum, they were entertaining false teaching, but the focus of the church, the letter to the church in Thyatira, was uh, they're turning a blind eye to sin and disobedience, open disobedience within the congregation, within the church. They, they didn't just compromise on teaching, but in their behavior, and in their behavior to accommodate the culture that they lived in with less hardship. If the letter to the church in Pergamum taught us to keep a close eye on our teaching and what we believe. The letter to the church in Thyatira tells us to keep a close eye on ourselves and our life in the culture we live in, to be faithful to Christ. This week, we're going to look at the letter to the church in Sardis, which, if we're going to describe it in any way, we might paradoxically describe it as a church without life. A church without life. Paradoxically, I said, because... We're going to see it wasn't completely dead. But Jesus does tell them to wake up. Wake up, because they were about to die as a church. And we'll think through this one carefully. It's a word we need to hear. So let's read the passage. Revelation chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1, and read through verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. 
You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot, out, blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your um, holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And it is, this is just a rote exercise without your help. And so I pray on this sleepy Sunday that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these words. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to embrace the truth. Give us wills to obey whatever it is you lead and call us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach. And as you encourage all the churches, give us ears to hear. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, um, there are four parts, four aspects of this letter that I want to zero in on and and help us try to understand what's going on here. So here are the four aspects of the letter that I want us to, to think about. First, the charge. The charge that Jesus brings against the church in Sardis. What does he charge them with? Secondly, the command. The command that he gives them. How should Having brought the charge against them, what are they now to do? The command. Third, the consequences if they don't. The consequences if they don't heed what the Lord Jesus says. And finally, the consolation for those who do. So with that, let's dive in and take a closer look at this sobering letter and think first about the charge. Jesus looks down on this church, or I guess if we're going to be more faithful to the imagery we've already been presented with in, this, in, this, uh, in chapter 1, for example. He looks around at this church because, remember, chapter 1 talks, told us that the Lord Jesus walks among the lampstands, which are the, the churches. He walks among them. So he looks around at this church. He looks at this church. He's present among the church. And uh, like to almost every other church he's addressed so far, he makes sure in verse 1, in the second half of verse 1, that they know this about him. I know your works. I know your works. He said the same thing to the church in Ephesus, to Thyatira. Jesus knows our works. And we're talking corporately here as a church. Uh, he knows our works. He knew their works. And here's something to think about. Knowing their works, here is, here is the assessment that he gives to them. 
He says, looking at verse 1, the second half, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. They, as a church, had a reputation among the community, among other churches. A reputation for what? For being alive, for being vibrant, for being uh, faithful, perhaps, even to others. But in reality, the Lord Jesus says they are dead. Now, a little more clarity. They are, a, they are dying as a church. Not quite dead yet, because he, I take you are dead in verse 1 to be hyperbole, to get their attention. and 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 Because um, what, what he says in verse 2 is, you're about to die. Um, and, he, and he says it that way in verse 1 just to show how close it is to being a reality that they were going to die. They are about to die, even though they have a reputation of being alive. That is exactly why I said this is an incredibly chilling reality that Jesus is revealing to them. However alive, vibrant, exciting they or others thought they were, Jesus says they were dying as a church. That, to me, shows you how easily it is for a church to misjudge, miscalculate its faithfulness to Christ. In a whole lot of ways, we use the, the wrong metrics to evaluate ourselves. Based on what we feel is important, based on what we feel is important and what we think we ought to be about, we look alive. We look vibrant. We might even say we look blessed based on what Christ says is important and what he knows about us, we could, in fact, be dying. They were dying. How so? What, what reason does Jesus give for this assessment? He tells them in verse 2. Uh, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What does that mean? Well, there's nothing else in this letter that is going to tell us exactly what he means by that. I've not found your works complete. So we're left to try to put the rest of the scriptures together as best we can, as faithfully as we can, responsibly as we can. Maybe uh, let's, I want to put a few other scriptures on your radar, and maybe we can try to understand what he's saying here. You can either turn to these or just jot the references down and listen carefully. For the sake of time, maybe just jot them down. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 29, 13. This is what the Lord tells Israel in that passage. These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And just think about what that's saying. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. The Lord tells Israel, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Think about that one. That, what, what does that, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What does that imply they were doing? They were offering sacrifices. 
They, 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 were, they were offering burnt offerings such that to anyone looking at them, on the outside it looked like commendable obedience. But something was missing there. What was it? Just in Hosea 6.6, 6, think about that. That is our mercy, not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's a couple from the Old Testament. Think about the New Testament. Matthew 23, 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What is he not commending them for? He is not commending the scribes for being scrupulously faithful to the tithe. Even going into their spice cabinet. What he was condemning them for is deeper heart issues. Think about that. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul makes it clear what ought to be behind everything we do. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Think about all of those passages, Old Testament and New Testament, and then consider one more time what Jesus might mean when he tells the church in Sardis, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I'm convinced he means exactly what all of those passages are getting at. He saw their works. The problem was they were either empty or misdirected in intention and aim. They were either going through the motions or had the wrong motive behind them. They were doing things. Their motives, their goals, their reasons were wrong. More than likely, I would submit, more than, in this case, more than likely their sole objective was to win the approval and the approbation of other people instead of seeking the commendation of Christ. I say this because verse 2 seems to put the emphasis on their reputation. The reputation that they were trying to hang on to. You have this reputation. That's not a word that's been used in any other letter so far. They were focused on their reputation, on what others thought about them, to the exclusion of what Jesus thought about them. And if that's why it's so dangerous, because it's so easy to convince ourselves that if we have the approval of one, it must mean we have the approval of the other. If anything, this, this should cause us to examine our reputations carefully. Um, what is the reputation of our church? Uh, I hope it is that we believe that, God, that uh, God's purpose for Lakeview Baptist Church is to love the Lord God and to express that love by making and nurturing and equipping disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. I think the reputation of Lakeview Baptist Church, if, if this past week is any indication, and if you go here for any length of time, Sunday by Sunday indicates this, that we are a missions-minded church. Um, we are a missions-passionate church, a sending church, a going church. It would... How, how then does this... How would this, that being the reputation, how might this letter rebuke us if necessary? Not necessarily for the reputation, but what's, what's underneath the reputation. 
What's behind it? It would be, re- here's, I'm going to give you a couple of ways. It would be really easy to come off a week like we've just had. Being reminded of the Great Commission and I mean, you, you got a pipeline sitting in front of you. You got, have, we have an, embarrass, an, an embarrassing amount as college students of both time. I, I tell you this so many times. You are the freest you will ever be in your life in terms of time. You have an embarrassing amount of time and opportunities to go. And you could have been here at all the sessions. People have seen you here. You could have genuinely felt excitement in your heart. You, by your presence here, by your enthusiasm during the week, have the reputation of being passionate, but you know deep down in your heart you never really intend to make any effort to avail yourself of any of these opportunities. The reputation of being passionate about getting the gospel of the nations looks there, but are the works incomplete? It would also be really easy on the other end of that spectrum to come off a a week like we've just had this past week and be reminded of the Great Commission and the missionaries, hear their stories, and uh, you realize the embarrassing amount of time and opportunities we have to go and and you, you sign up to go somewhere, and it's the 17th time you've signed up to go anywhere, and your passport pages are almost full of stamps. You have the reputation of being passionate about getting the gospel, and, 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 and you, have the, you have the trips to back it up. But perhaps you love the idea of missions more than the Lord of the mission. He knows the works. Are they incomplete? Everything we do as a church and everything that you are personally involved in in the life of this church is to bring glory and honor to Jesus above all other objects and to make you more like Jesus in the process. The church in Sardis was doing the works. The Lord knew them, but they were incomplete because of wrong motives, wrong intentions, empty motions. Jesus, therefore, gives them a command. Think about that with me. Goodness, we've got to move. He actually gives them several commands. The first one he gives them is in verse 2, where he tells them, wake up, which is appropriate for this morning. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So the first command there, wake up. They were going through the motions, or they were, they were, they were going through, They were doing works with the wrong intentions, wrong motives, wrong aims. Therefore, they were, even if they had, even if they were misdirected with the wrong aim, they didn't have to be empty. They were, there was still no life about them. Jesus was telling them that they were about to die as a church if they didn't wake up. But how do you do that? How do you just wake up? He tells them in verse 3. He says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. So he teaches us that you wake up first by remembering what you received and heard. Which is what? I take him to mean the gospel. Because that is, it's those kinds of terms that the New Testament routinely refers to the gospel. In 1 
Corinthians 15, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, which is what? That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So this idea of what you, what you received. John, in 1 John, talks about the gospel, what we have seen and heard, touched with our hands. So I think he's telling them first to, to if you're going to wake up, remember the message about Jesus Christ um, that they first heard and received, remember it. Remember the undeserved, unconditional, unlimited love of Jesus for sinners, for you the sinner. Not just take his word for it, but expressed in his, his obedient life given for your disobedient one. For his death given for your condemnation and your judgment. His resurrection given for your eternal life. His Holy Spirit given to actually bring you to repentance and faith in that. His purpose of grace from beginning to end. Remember that gospel. But secondly, Jesus tells them to keep it. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. What does that mean? How do you keep the gospel? you remember that the gospel comes with a calling to obedience. It's why Paul often talks about the obedience of faith. And in fact, in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul actually talks about obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What is the call to the gospel? Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. The call of the gospel is 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the call of the gospel. Not just, hey, here's how you go to heaven when you die. Free grace, just accept it with a believing heart. Do as you please. Punch your ticket. The gospel calls those who accept the free grace of Jesus Christ, to give up our supposed right to act as our own Lord. Calls us to love Jesus more than we love ourselves. Be willing to lay down our our, our lives, our pride, our preferences to do what is pleasing to the Lord. The gospel is, is what has Jesus done for us? Brother Al is right when he says, it's quippy, the gospel is not D-O do, but D-O-N-E done. The gospel is what Jesus has done for us. The gospel call for those who now believe is I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus told the almost dead despite appearances church in Sardis to wake up and do that by remembering the grace of Jesus Christ. To walk in obedience to the call that it brings. And in so doing, they would be carrying out the third command given there is repent. They, that would be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But how does remembering these things change a person? How does that cause waking up? Let me tell you how. Notice, notice quickly again how Jesus describes himself, always important, in verse 1. 
in the opening words. The words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. There is a debate over who are the seven stars. Are they the pastors of the churches? Are they angels with some sort of charge over the church? But there is no debate over who, over the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is introducing himself, reminding them at the outset as he is the one who, who gives his Holy Spirit to that church, the church that desires to be faithful and obedient. The church at Sardis was dying despite deceiving appearances. And the way Jesus says for them to be revived is to remember the gospel and give their lives wholeheartedly to Jesus again. And he's promising that then as they pursue that aim, He would move in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and awaken them and revive them and make them to be what He wants them to be. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What he was saying to them, he says to us, calling them and calling us to repent of to repent of passion, to repent of passion and obedience that doesn't go any deeper than appearances. Don't trust your reputation. That you know isn't the whole story. Don't read your own press clippings. Look at Jesus. Remember the gospel. Heed the call. Repent of half-hearted appearances. Follow hard. We need to wake up just like the church in Sardis. Not, not, not only because it's commanded and he is worthy, but because for those who don't, the Lord lays out consequences. He says in verse 3 that for those who don't wake up and repent, I will come like a thief and you will, know it, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, at one level, that could be talking about the second coming. Those who aren't uh, consciously seeking to live each uh, a, 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 a genuine Christ-centered and obedient life, they're certainly not thinking about the possibility that Christ could return at any moment. That's, a, that's sobering. But at another level, this could also be referring to Jesus bringing a different kind of judgment, just not the second coming. And I, 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 I tend to think that because notice that this consequence is conditional. It implies if we repent, he won't come like this. And the second coming isn't conditional. So I believe he's referring to another kind of judgment that he could bring at any time. And his judgment could be the dissolution of that church. His judgment could be the loss of, of, of opportunity for those who need to hear the gospel and repent. But for those who do repent, those who follow hard after Jesus and trust Him for their salvation and want to live every day to bring Him glory by our lives and avail themselves of, of the opportunities around them, he, he promises incredible consolation. Think about that very quickly with me. Consolation. Jesus praises some in that church in verse 4 who remained faithful. Again, we see this, this theme where we are all responsible for each other. And so even when some are faithful within the church and others are not, Jesus finds fault with the whole church for the unrepentant sins of others in the church and for the lack of accountability for those who are faithful. But he's not unmindful of the, of the faithful, and he's not unmerciful to the repentant. In verse 5, he promises that the faithful and repentant 
will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. What a consolation to know, especially in difficult times and in times where we desire to be faithful, but we are very aware of our many failings, that our names are already written down in the book of life. If we are trusting in Jesus and he won't erase them, and he goes on to say, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The Lord himself will call our names from his book. So again, the Lord ends this letter pleading with those who have ears to hear this word. There are believers and there are churches who, base, who based on reputation, believe all is well, but who need to hear this admonition from Christ. So we need to wake up and repent. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to go here is what you would have talked about around your tables maybe you can think about on your own one there's just two questions that I was going to put your way one what does this letter teach you about the mercy of Jesus even in hard sayings what does it teach you about the mercy of Jesus and then what does what does this letter, what is the Holy Spirit through this letter calling you personally to do? What do you feel like the Holy Spirit through this letter is calling you personally to do? All right, I'm going to pray and we'll go. Lord, thank you so much for this word. I, I pray um, as much for myself as I exhorted anyone else that I would wake up. I would remember what I received and heard and that I would keep it. I would repent so that whatever uh, anyone sees in us and the reputation that we might have to anyone observing our lives is the real thing. Uh, may Jesus get all the glory. I pray it in his name. Amen.